Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sleep where? Sleep anywhere, that's what I say, whenever you can. This far into lockdown, my main daily motivation when I wake up is knowing that it's only 15 hours or so before I get to go back to bed again. And when so many of us are currently spending so much time in our PJs, or if you're an important key worker, needing some comfy ones for the scarce moments you get to wear them, British Boxers are the properly ethically sound independent shop for undies and nightwear that you'll probably also wear in the day for quite some months yet. They have everything from hipster briefs, which I assume have their own beards and cutoffs, uh, to pyjama separates in case um, your pyjamas don't get on well enough to hang out together. Okay, look, I'm clearly not an expert, but having got some of their nightwear, I promise it's well comfy. And if you make an order at british-boxers.com and use the code PARPOLBRO10, then you'll get 10% off anything you buy. Hey, you might accuse me of being in the pockets of big pyjama, and I would say, yes, yes I am. And it's very, very snug in here. Join me. Join me. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast podcast, the comedy politics show that provides full protection against all variations because it's just sort of shouting about the same stuff every single week. But hey, that means it's very successful in having rapidly falling numbers. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and massive congratulations to the British government who have successfully avoided potential snow travel chaos by continually fucking up the Covid response so badly that we're still not allowed to go anywhere. Also, a really big shout out this week to the Oxford vaccine, which is proving it's definitely sovereign and British by failing to put anything in place to deal with unexpected imports. Uh, don't worry though, as the Prime Minister, and what if someone made a snowman out of blowtorch gelignite and stuck children's fancy dress on it, Boris Johnson? He says the public can have full confidence in it working against the South African variant. You know, in the same way he told us we should shop with confidence in the midst of the pandemic last year, or have confidence in Education Minister and drain clog Gavin Williamson not ruining all of education, or in Home Secretary and the human version of getting a splinter right under your nail, Pretty Patel not being a bully, or it, yeah, you get what I mean. I'm just saying that on reflection, maybe we'd all be better off eating mouldy bread and hoping for the best. Obviously, I am joking, uh, you should definitely get your vaccine. And according to Deputy Chief Medical Officer and Giant Baby, because, I mean, come on, he just definitely is a huge baby in a suit, Jonathan Van Tam, we really shouldn't be concerned about the South African variant or vaccines not working against it. As much like English politics, it seems the Kent variant will remain dominant for the future. 
According to Vaccine Minister and the Worst Egg, Nadim Zawahi, even if the vaccines we're currently using have reduced efficiency in stopping you catching it, they may reduce hospitalisation or death, meaning that the government can reopen everything ASAP, very safe in the knowledge that at worst you'll feel as run down and awful as we all have done since 2010. There's definitely enough vaccine for everyone too, so don't worry about that. I mean, the vaccine minister says he can see the supply week by week until the end of March, after which you're clearly on your own again and it's your fault for not being older. If you're over 70 and you haven't had your vaccine yet, then you, uh, yes you, should contact the National Booking Service online, which will probably crash by the end of the week. Or you can do it via phone, which will probably be engaged. And frankly, your lack of organisation, just so you can personally ruin the government's targets, is really unfair and certainly won't go unnoticed. When you do get your vaccine, don't go thinking it'll give you any special proof of the jab, though, as the government have ruled out plans for vaccine passports, probably because when combined with the new British blue ones, they'll just cancel each other out in terms of viable travel plans. Oh, you're vaccinated. Great. Climb aboard. Wait, sorry. Where are you from? Britain? No, sorry. Get back off again. Perhaps it's also to avoid confused messaging about their immigration policies. I mean, the government are currently saying that the vaccine jab will be free regardless of someone's immigration status. And I guess the last thing they want to do is raise someone's hopes that they've got less draconian about borders by giving them a passport when in reality they're only pushing this so they know you won't infect anyone on the plane they'll deport you on. What the government are doing, though, is combining Valentine's Day with the one-year anniversary of COVID getting it on with Britain and celebrating by surprising the virus with a romantic 10-day hotel quarantine stay. I mean, I'm sure as he's done with all his relationships, the Prime Minister is going to leave booking the rooms till the very last minute, at which point there'll only be shitty service station places off the M1 available and Johnson will make sure that anyone but him foots the bill. So, these quarantine hotels, yeah? Ten days of being stuck in your room, all food brought to you, you're unable to go outside except for a fag break. Where can you book for one of these? Uh, I'm asking for me and tired parents everywhere, for which this sounds like a dream vacation for 2021. Sadly, the stay will only be mandatory from February the 15th for anyone stupid enough to travel to the UK from a country on the travel ban list. But why would anyone do that? I mean, have they not seen or read anything ever? I mean, the only reason it might make sense for someone to come here right now is because they're part of Doctors Without Borders or they need inspiration for their remake of The Omega Man. I mean, this is why the UK terror threat's been lowered from severe to just substantial. Because chances are, if any terrorist turned up to this snow-covered post-Brexit Rona hellscape, they'd think, oh, there's nothing left to do here, lads. They've got it covered. Quarantine hotels are, though, and yet, look, I hate to say it, a fairly sensible idea from the government, except that it's happening almost a year too late. Uh, but I guess, you know, the chase is the fun part, right? And it just wouldn't have been as good if we didn't give COVID a head start first. There wouldn't have been a challenge to it. And, of course, this government are all about unleashing potential or something. James Cleverly, a man who has the constant expression of a dog that's just stepped on a rake and is somehow the Minister of State for the Middle East and North Africa, which, I mean, that is the most obvious way to announce that you honestly couldn't give a fuck what happens to a place. Well, he got very angry in an interview when he was asked, why is this only happening a year later than it should have been? And he responded by saying, well, the government needed time to prepare. Oh, of course they did. I mean, it probably takes hours just to get Johnson to put his shoes and jacket on. So a year, plus those few months where the Prime Minister couldn't be bothered to attend any Cobra meetings. Well, that definitely isn't enough time to book a few hotels to prevent variants of a virus, when the government also had to learn what a virus is, what a variant is, spend hours writing policies for tier systems or slogans that had to sound like they were a bonus round on a game show, get rid of homelessness but then bring it back but worse, make everyone go to restaurants and teach Boris Johnson that people stay in hotels for more than the 30 minutes he usually needs in them just to disappoint a naive intern. 
No contracts have been given to hotel chains to take part in the scheme yet, so judging by the past year, they'll just be handed to whoever donates to the Conservative Party first and somehow end up with travellers landing at Heathrow before being picked up in an army truck and thrown into a makeshift shack in a car park behind Chessington World of Adventures. When asked if he knew where the next mutant strain of the virus was coming from, cleverly said he didn't know, which is unusual as he'd assume that all one-cell organisms that focus on ruining lives would communicate with each other. Cleverly actually insisted there's no point in closing borders to all countries just in case a virus happens to mutate there, as actually we in Britain are really good at finding variations once they arrive. Are we? How do we do that then? By catching them and announcing sort of like a wine connoisseur, no, this breathing difficulty has hints of Cape Town in summer and a whiff of Rio, probably if I can smell anything. Come on, mate, the coronavirus isn't a new update to Pokemon Go where we all just wander around and cough out, I've got a rare one from Outer Mongolia, and everyone swarms there to cash in. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but considering the test and trace programme for months couldn't even locate someone who you had the numbers for in your own phone, and the government repeatedly lose important documents leading to citizens getting deported, and we have a Prime Minister who isn't even sure where his kids are, I feel like chances are very slim that they're going to be some sort of variant super force. Saying that, those variants will be coming from abroad, so there's also a chance that the second they arrive, Pretty Patel will be able to sniff them out and put them in a detention centre within minutes. Which actually is probably exactly where the quarantine hotels will end up being too. And least, if nothing else, the Google reviews that should appear afterwards might highlight how badly we treat supposedly illegal immigrants. Well, we arrived back from a lovely two weeks in Mauritius, only to be forcefully bundled into a car and left in a building with no Wi-Fi, no water, no toilets and forced to clean everything for £1 an hour. Still, it was quite the immersive experience and cheaper than secret cinema, so two stars. Maybe a year isn't long enough to plan for these things, though. I mean, health secretary and man who definitely tries to impress his kids by showing them he knows all the words to a rap but changes all the swears to things like oopsie, Matt Hancock, he's only just got round to watching the 2011 film about a pandemic, Contagion, which seems to have really influenced him and sadly explains why the main plan to defeat the virus seems to be to sit around and wait for Marianne Cotillard and Matt Damon to save us all. Hancock says the film hasn't been his primary source of advice. I mean, of course not, right? I mean, there's every chance he's now watched Outbreak as well, and the next big policy will be to stop primates from flying to the UK. Obviously, only from countries on the travel ban list. Maybe he should have shown some of these films to his buddy, head of Test and Trace and constipated hamster Dido Harding, who told the Science and Technology Select Committee that none of us were able to predict the virus would mutate. Speak for yourself, Dido. Even I could, and my only real knowledge of things that go viral is the occasional tweet I do that goes well, and then afterwards realise it has a glaring typo and I feel haunted by it for days. Harding is head of the National Institute for Health Protection, and potentially soon NHS England too, and she didn't know that viruses mutate. I mean, what other areas of health is she unaware of? Well, none of us knew that once his leg fell off he'd keep bleeding out. Well, no one had any idea that breaking your back meant you couldn't move. I thought you'd just roll around on your bum everywhere. Yeah, well, Dido, I guess none of us could have predicted that if the government bunged a load of cash and important jobs to their friends, that they'd be really, really fucking shit at them. Life is full of endless surprises, right? The government are reportedly planning a big shake-up of the NHS, which isn't really what it needs after all this, is it? It needs a proposed cuddle and a cup of tea. The plans say that they will centralise decision-making. One source was quoted as saying that the NHS is getting a new driver, and that new driver could be Matt Hancock. A sentence that would be properly terrifying for the country, even if the context was about a toddler's tricycle. It could mean that in future, health secretaries would be able to override NHS executive decisions. So as a comedian, if we could just ensure that Matt Hancock watches Patch Adams at some point soon, then I might get to have a lucrative career by 2023. 
Meanwhile, the Chancellor and animated corn cob Rishi Sunak has accused scientists of moving the goalposts on lockdown, which instantly proves he doesn't even understand what scientists are or he wouldn't put them in a sports-based analogy. To be fair, it must be very unsettling for him to see professionals regularly changing their mind based on evidence. Hope is coming, though, as Boris Johnson, the French president and weirdly old child Emmanuel Macron have been discussing a COVID-19 collaboration. Yeah, and you thought Infinity War was the most ambitious crossover event. But here we have two very useless leaders that no one likes working together to at least give their citizens hope that they may turn their attention to ruining somewhere else for an hour every afternoon. Johnson has also said that the earliest sensible date school should return is March the 8th, so I'm guessing they'll return February the 22nd for a full day before being closed again till 2023. Somehow the plan is still also for local elections to happen in May, which seems completely nuts till you remember that by then only the over 60s will have been overwhelmingly vaccinated and able to safely vote, so the Conservatives will likely win everything. Voters will be advised to bring their own pens to vote because that is where we are in 2021 now, with used pens conspiracy theorists being the key to holding up democracy. Of course, the news that dominated headlines the past week was the death of Captain Tom Moore, a 100-year-old man that raised a lot of money for the NHS, which is probably why the Conservatives were so desperate to clap when he died, as it must be really annoying to put all the effort in to dismantle an institution and then some old dude props it back up. The Prime Minister insisted that everyone stand on their doorsteps at 6pm and clap for Captain Tom, an unlikely icon who became a symbol of the last year in that he was an elderly person who was able to do laps in spring but died of Covid ten months later because our government are terrible. It is odd that Johnson either wants to clap people his government is sending to their death or after they've died as though he thinks it'll work like the Tinkerbell effect. Actually, no, sorry, that can't be it as that would require him to believe in something. There is, of course, no greater way to remember someone having done something remarkable than by weaponising their death in order to distract from you having done something consistently shit. Johnson said we should all channel Captain Tom's spirit, which made it sound like we needed a Ouija board, but probably actually just meant that he's about to announce that the NHS will now be funded by 100-year-olds having to run around a lot. There is anger at Cabinet Office Secretary and walking teratoma Michael Gove, who ignored all warnings as exports to the EU have been slashed by 68% since Brexit. But let's be fair, as Gove did say, trade would be frictionless, and what could have less friction than something that doesn't actually exist? Gove has written to the EU to ask for an extended Brexit grace period on checks between Northern Ireland and Britain, because as you know, you're not allowed to eat until after grace. He's insisted that this isn't to do with teething problems, you understand, as I guess that would mean the Brexit plan the government have has teeth. So instead, Gove said there were serious problems with the Northern Ireland protocol that needed addressing. So may I suggest that he sends them in a stamped self-addressed envelope so he and the rest of the government can finally read what it was they signed off on in a rush last year. The Labour Party have decided their way to win back disillusioned voters is with use of the union flag, veterans and dressing smartly, which sounds a bit like a challenge on a UKIP version of Taskmaster. Who knew that the key to electability in 2021 would be emulating Ginger Spice on a tour of Eastbourne? But a leaked report shows plans to change the party's body language, which at the moment seems to be largely lying on the floor trying to eat themselves like a really boring aerobarus. It's strange to think, well, voters like voting Conservatives, so the best way for us to win votes is to be so like the Conservatives that it might accidentally tick a box for us at the elections instead. Perhaps Labour are right though, and Labour leader and canopy cookerhood extractor fan Keir Starmer regularly appears to have a poll shoved up him and ideas that are flagging at best, so now all he needs to do is wear a tuxedo and treat animals and I'm sure there'll be points ahead. 
as part of this new image that will appeal to absolutely no one with Tory voters still choosing Tories and everyone else thinking it's awful, Labour made a statement that the royal family have been a beacon of hope for millions during the pandemic. And I guess that is true, as if they've managed to stop Prince Andrew getting inappropriately close to people this whole time, then it shows how easy social distancing should be for the rest of us. Starmer has also announced that he is pro-business, which doesn't really mean anything unless I guess you're adamantly anti-hobbies. Though Johnson did say fuck business the other year, which he has done with Brexit and Covid regulations, but judging by how he treats the women he sleeps with, we're not exactly sure how he meant it. Equalities Minister and What If Moon Girl Was a Villain, Kemi Badenoch, publicly bullied a HuffPost journalist for merely asking her a question, but the Cabinet Office haven't considered it to be a breach of ministerial code, because we all know that part of being a Cabinet Minister is not having to justify anything. As a result, the Prime Minister's senior advisor on ethnic minorities and estate agent basic template, Samuel Kasumu, offered his resignation over what he said was politics steeped in division. But then he took it back after realising that someone might ask him a question about why he hasn't quit at least 57 times by now and he might have to answer it. And finally, the Bank of England say the British economy will rebound strongly due to the vaccine, which I think means, based on my experience, that it will fuck around carelessly to try and ignore all the symptoms of loss that it's been through. Yeah, Papa Bruds, how's that beast from the East 2 treating you? Oh, trust 2021 to bring us only the sequels that absolutely no one asked for. Didn't have the beast from the East 1 in 2018 and think, you know what? I'd really be keen to see how that story continues. I really want to know how the characters move on. Um, Obviously, some of you listening have had snow consistently since, I don't know, probably seems like 2018 now. And so this week, um, snow is probably of absolutely no interest to you. You probably don't care about the beast from the East 1. You haven't even noticed it. Um, But here... Uh, At the very least, the snow is is quite lovely. It's making everything look nice and it's covering up all the potholes uh, that the council haven't bothered fixing in the past year. So at least it's a bit of a surprise when you drive into one. And hey, I will take surprises where I can get them right now. Thank you. Um, What a lovely surprise it was. Uh, How many of you tuned into the live podcast show on Saturday at the Leicester Comedy Festival? Um, Or as I explained uh, during the live show, it wasn't at the Leicester Comedy Festival. It was sort of virtually in Leicester. But um, I made myself feel like I was actually there by spending the two hours beforehand driving endlessly around the same one-way system and crying um thank you loads if you did turn up um i don't know yet how much we raised for the woodgate community food bank um but it should be a decent amount and i'm super grateful to you lot for buying tickets and watching giving us a lovely audience too it's nice to see uh, many of you laughing throughout um also to abby and tim for being guests on a show that was a tad more stressful to do than this usual lark is um but i will be putting the audio of that show out as a podcast uh, as a podcast what's a podcast as a bonus podcast maybe that is a podcast i would like to call it or perhaps that is a podcast specifically about the 80s cartoon uh, bod which um, I may embark on uh, I've got time to kill um, anyway the bonus podcast of the Leicester Comedy Festival will go out later in the week um, and also if you're a Patreon or Kofi subscriber I may put it, the full video up possibly if I can work out how um, I should really put it up for everyone but I don't understand how these things work so anyway you'll get the bonus podcast um, as you'll hear some of the gags at the beginning are ones that you've just heard because well only so much news has happened all right well i can't do anything about that and i could cut that intro bit out of the bonus podcast but there'll be the odd one or two of you that may enjoy hearing how i messed uh, up the gags for the live show or i made them better for this podcast or worse anyway that you can skip it you know how buttons work um but do listen for the interview and then donate to the woodgate community food bank or 
even better your local food bank I guess uh, once you do listen to thank you um, if you did watch what did you think should I do a live streaming podcast again or should I never even mention it again mention what again exactly um, I did enjoy it though it was sort of juggling gags and jingles and interviews all at the same time it was a bit perplexing but I'm sort of keen to try and find other ways to do live specials of this podcast even if it gives me the brutal realisation that actually I'd just be awful as a radio DJ um, but yeah do let me know so uh, as it's sort of double podcast week um I need to keep this admin bit brief. I just always talk. It's just nice to talk to someone, isn't it, um, uh, during this period, even though there's no one. That I'm just talking to myself. Oh, guys, it's lockdown so long. Anyway, quick thank you this week to um, Dave and Carol, Abby, Lynn and Kim for donating to the Kofi and to Jen for joining the Patreon. Thank you tons for that. And if you enjoy this show enough um, or use the noise from it to block out the sound of that forklift truck moving lots of carpets up and down your road to the carpet shop on the corner, that is, sorry, that's exactly what's happening as I'm recording this. It's really loud. You sort of think the carpets would muffle the noise, but no, just really loud. Still, it raises my hopes of survival if I'm ever rolled into one by gangsters. So that's a plus point. Anyway, um, please then donate a few pennies to the uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, or via the ACAST supporter button on the app. Uh, you can also grab yourself some nifty pants or PJs from BritishBoxers.com, who are still sponsoring this podcast, um, as they haven't learned yet. They, haven't, they just haven't learned. Uh, they, haven't, they haven't backed out. I don't know what's wrong with them. Um, but you might have heard from the earlier jingle that they're still sort of sponsors, which is very nice. Um, and if you head to their site and buy anything using the code parpolbro10, then you get 10% off, help out a lovely, ethical, independent business, and I get some pocket money too. Um, obviously, if you can't do any of those things, then instead, please leave the show a lovely review like Barry has done this week on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Barry. Um, or just spread the word and get even more ears to this show. The sort of ears that are attached to people's heads. That is, I don't want to be responsible for like a Reservoir Dogs style situation. That would be awful. Oh, and last thing is, um, I'm not even sure I can mention this yet, but I'm going to anyway. What, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, you can't stop me. You're not my dad. Um, other than this podcast, I do the Comedy Club for Kids podcast, Radio Nonsense, which we've been doing loads loads of new ones of lately, including the most recent one being Athena Kuglenu answering 11 questions from an eight-year-old all about poo. Um, it's a lot of fun. If you have kids, please make them listen to that. But on top of that kids podcast, um, I've been asked to be one of the storytellers on the very, very popular Super Great Kids Stories podcast. So if you have wee ones um, and you subscribe to that, you will hear me telling a Norse myth um, and some other stories on there soon, which is really exciting. I've really enjoyed just telling a story. Um, it's a lot of good fun. Um, it's a properly lovely podcast so well worth a subscribe if you have kids who like listening to a good yarn you know as opposed to this podcast for all of you who are sick of the government spinning shit ones right on this week's show I am speaking to multiple time podcast the brilliant brilliant Emily Kenway about her new book The Truth About Modern Slavery and there's also a little bit in the middle about everyone's favourite subject of cladding who doesn't bloody love construction material based chat well this is a multi-layered show after all To say that many Brits are confused by the term slavery is an understatement. I mean, to some it refers to something we abolished by stopping the suffering of slave owners by paying them lots of money to not have to go to the trouble of owning people anymore. And actually, pulling down their statues is worse as it upsets stone trolls or something. Or for many recently, uh, slavery was what was used to refer to what the EU was doing to the UK, you know, by allowing us to trade freely with them and boost environmental standards. Classic slavery there, obviously. When it comes to modern slavery, there's sadly just as much confusion. I mean, many might assume that it's just like slavery that we understand and know from history, or that it refers to human trafficking only, or being a parent to a toddler. Actually, the term modern slavery covers so many different types of exploitation, while also posing as a handy coverall term for politicians who want to insist they're doing something about something important, while not really doing anything at all and often making it much worse. 
According to the government's own website, modern slavery is defined as the recruitment, movement, harbouring or receiving of anyone through the means of force, coercion, abuse of vulnerability, deception or other means for the purpose of exploitation. And yet, under that, they don't include anyone, for example, who was forced to do the workfare scheme in order to claim their benefits, or the DVLA staff who've recently been forced to go to work during a pandemic, or, you know, parents of toddlers. OK, not the last one, but really, I mean, there are days. There really are days. Here's the thing. Uh, there are situations of horrific exploitation in the UK, but you have to question when the government calls modern slavery one of the greatest human rights issues of our time, why they're so concerned about that human rights issue, but none of the others that they've been causing. And also why, if they're really that keen on stopping it, so many of their policies on immigration in particular are actually making modern slavery much more prevalent. Is it just that in reality, like our country's confused narrative about how we somehow abolished slavery by not bothering to make any reparations to the victims of it, that now our government, along with many other politicians around the world, are tackling modern slavery by just pretending it's everything except the exploitation that they really, really like? Oh yeah, those domestic workers whose visas have been so limited that they're at the complete behest of their employers from the moment they arrive. Ah, no, 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 that's not slavery, because they're from one of them foreign places and it's what we have to do so they don't take all the horrifically low-paid abusive jobs that Brits wouldn't do anyway. So obviously, it's totes fine. This week's podcast guest is the brilliant Emily Kenway, who has in fact been a podcast guest twice before, and most recently was back in episode 156 in 2019, where she explained all about what modern slavery was and if the Modern Slavery Act had done anything to stop it. Uh, The answers were, as you can probably guess, uh, mostly no, not really. Um, And since then, Emily has written and released a brilliant, brilliant book called The Truth About Modern Slavery, which um, is a challenge to narratives we have on the term, how it's been used as a political tool by governments and legitimises other areas of exploitation. As you'll hear when I talk to Emily, um, I found it sort of hard to describe how I felt about the book, as enjoyed is the wrong word for something that highlights so much exploitation and how framing can be used in such a harmful way. But I did find it really, really fascinating, really eye-opening, and one of those books that, honestly, I would recommend absolutely everyone read, not just in terms of how we understand modern slavery, but also how applicable it is to so many of the recent political crusades the government have championed. So listen to this, then go and get the book and read it all and tell absolutely everyone else to as well. Here is Emily. Emily, I am really, really enjoying your book. I I think uh, it's an absolutely fascinating insight into the truth about modern slavery, but I think also... It's um, a really good critique of the lack of critical thinking about so much political misdirection. And I find that there's so many points in it where I find it really eye opening and going, oh, of course that means that. But also this is exactly what it's like in the rest of the political sphere we're in. Um, so thank you. It's been absolutely fascinating read so far. Um, and it's it's been it's lovely to get you back on the podcast. And when you last spoke with me, it was 2019. Um, and you gave an absolutely brilliant rundown then of what modern slavery is. But now after reading your book, I wondered if you'd not only give us a recap, but also sort of explain whether modern slavery is slavery in the way that many of us think it is. Yeah, okay. It's a great question. And thank you for having me back. So Um, There's a short answer and then the more interesting answer. So um, what is modern slavery? Well, on a very superficial definitional level, it is just an umbrella term for lots of different types of severe exploitation. So under that overarching term includes things like human trafficking, forced labour, domestic servitude, and all of those have their own definitions that I explain in places in the book. 
But really, uh, what the book shows is that modern slavery, it's not just this umbrella term, it's not just a phrase, it's a story about exploitation. It's a particular way of thinking and talking about exploitation. We've started to tell it over the last decade or two. And unfortunately, it's actually undermining uh, attempts to stop exploitation from happening in the first place. And it does this um, because the modern slavery story is that exploitation is uh, an anomaly it's kind of an evil aberration that happens in society in the economy being perpetrated by criminals right um so it's nothing to do with this uh, the state with the economy with society and in the same vein of that we see proponents of this talking about monoslavery as a parasite, a virus. We need to inoculate our local areas. We need to scrub supply chains clean. And all of that language direct from people that are kind of new abolitionists, so part of this monoslavery movement, is to build in our mind this idea that exploitation is um, this evil aberration kind of imposed on our society. And in talking about it like that, you'll often hear as well politicians saying, oh, modern slavery is above politics. There should be no hint of party politics when it comes to modern slavery. And that's because they're trying to say it's a criminal, a solely criminal issue. Uh, it's an exception to the rule of general socioeconomic circumstances, which are all fine and dandy, apparently. It's just like this baddie has come in and done something. And obviously the phrase modern slavery is relying on um, our connotations of historical slavery, right? Like clearly that's what, what that is doing. And it's a very specific way that it draws on historical slavery. So it's this UK nationalistic heroic story about how we vanquished slavery, right? Wilberforce did it. And he's mentioned a lot in speeches about modern slavery. And you have things like the 2019 Conservative Party general election manifesto had this amazing line in it that was something like, um, the UK has always been a beacon of freedom and human rights. It was with regard to historical slavery and it is today with modern slavery, um, which obviously is you know, completely untrue. We created historical slavery. Um, and crucially, what we abolished in 1833, what, what Wilberforce kind of made happen, was the right to own someone else legally as property, we never abolished exploitation. And in fact, um, getting rid of that right of ownership led to a lot of the very kinds of circumstances we now call modern slavery. So in reality, you start to see that modern slavery, sure it's a phrase, sure it's this umbrella term, but it's actually a story about exploitation that's distracting us from how political choices, economic choices are creating exploitation in the first place. It's really fascinating. It's, it's like I sort of mentioned earlier, that, that not to go on a tangent away from from you know modern slavery, but it is it's the same thing we're getting with the pandemic, where the pandemic can't be political and or everyone must work together. But that then means we can't focus on where the money's going to do with it, and you know instead we've got to fight it like the Blitz. And it's it's that power of language that makes us believe there's a simple villain to this, and there's a simple hero, and uh, you know everything is directed as though we are we are the we are the goodies and. You know, mm -hmm. everything else is, uh, is is just a distraction. Um, and what, one of the things I found particularly uh, fascinating, uh, which, again, I think a lot of people are sort of aware of, but you um, 
really states the case really clearly about how much immigration policy in the UK has really affected um, the levels of modern slavery. And sort of, can you talk a little bit about how the government's message of tackling modern slavery is completely at odds to their policies that seem to be exacerbating it? Yeah, absolutely. And you can really see this when the Modern Slavery Act was going through Parliament from 2013 to 2015. It was sandwiched between these two immigration acts that created this thing we call the hostile environment. So a collection of laws and policies that try to make it um, really unattractive for undocumented people to live in or come to the UK. There's no evidence that these policies work at all, apart from to harm people. Uh, But the fact that the act was sandwiched between these two acts is is really um, telling. So Um, There's a few really clear examples. For example, in 2016, in that Immigration Act I mentioned, the government introduced something called the illegal working offence. And this is a criminal offence if you're working without the right paperwork. As a migrant, you're an undocumented migrant. It makes it a crime for you to work, for you to be employed. And... um, What this has done is, A, push undocumented people into sort of shadowy parts of our economy, uh, which are massively under-regulated, therefore they're much more likely to be exploited there. B, it has directly handed, and this is so well proven in research, it's directly handed unscrupulous bosses, people who are looking to make easy money, a tool of coercion, a tool to force bad conditions on people because those people, those undocumented workers, have no legal rights. They are treated as criminals. So you create what someone I quote in the book calls easy prey, basically, for offenders. And, uh, you know, obviously a huge fear of going to the authorities, right? Because you're probably going to get arrested. Um, And the really important thing here is that, um, I mean, obviously the human cost of that, but also in when this policy was being brought in in the in 2016, the government, so like the minister in their kind of government Web page, speaking to the BBC spokespeople doing that, um, all were using this line that they kept repeating everywhere, which is using illegal labour exploits workers and it's a really important phrase to say, hang on, what on earth is going on here? Because using illegal labour does not exploit workers. Creating the category of illegal labour exploits people. It makes people easy to exploit because it makes them vulnerable. And, um, you know, that's that's the kind of like double speak, double think that's going on in this space. So we're being told the government is, you know, yeah, this like moral hero trying to protect people from exploitation is actually directly creating the legal framework to cause it in the first place. Um, there's the other like obvious facet is um, borders, obviously being part of part of immigration. And this is where, you know, I said that the Monsavery story treats exploitation as this kind of parasite, this accidental occurrence. Um, And that's very true with the public imagination and understanding of human trafficking. So when you hear about trafficking, you think of traffickers to blame. It's those baddies. Well, actually, trafficking that happens because someone's been like randomly kidnapped or abducted is extremely rare. Most human trafficking is migration gone wrong. So that means someone's tried to migrate. There aren't enough safe and legal pathways for them to do so. And obviously, therefore, they're traveling undocumented. They fall into the wrong hands they're very easy to exploit so um you know arguably borders themselves are creating a lot of human trafficking they're certainly creating people vulnerable to it 
Um, and you also have lots of um, lots of ways that government is creating it by designing visas really problematically so that people can't change employers easily without becoming illegal, so to speak. So it's, it's essentially like um, the most the, the ultimate um, example of a government stating it wants one thing and totally undermining it uh, on the other on the other hand. It's always one of the things that completely baffles me about just the whole sort of patriotic uh, stance for the government is that we are the best country ever. And at the same time, they don't want anyone to ever come and check or see it or visit it or work here. Um, And I I found it very fascinating, as you said, just how many people end up in in situations of exploitation because they wanted to come and work here and they were they wanted to, you know, it it was to do with exploit, uh, you know, poverty uh, in their home or, or issues of, of the country they live in and they want to come to somewhere that they believe to be better and work and then fall into exploitation because of just how harsh those mm-hmm. laws are which is I mean I, I think one of the case in point was the uh, I think some of the domestic workers that you, you mentioned in the book who end up trapped in the most horrific situations for months and then stay there because a their visa means they don't have a choice but also because they are as you said so scared of going to the home office in the the fact that our home office is more scary than being subject to abuse that's a really horrible situation yeah and on that I just mentioned yes so this is actually a live campaign at the moment I hope we can link there's a petition I hope we can link to it and sort of show notes or on twitter or something because um this visa for overseas domestic workers, so migrant, mainly women who are in private households as nannies or housekeepers, cleaners, that kind of thing. This visa, um, it's, it used to not allow them to change employer at all, which created horrific abuses because obviously there's a huge power imbalance there. People can't leave an exploitative employer because they face being deported so that was really awful they changed it in 2016 on paper to allow them to change employer but these visas are only six months long and they're not they didn't make them renewable so essentially in practice the women still cannot change employer because who is going to hire a nanny for their toddlers for um when they've only got two months left on their visa it's it's almost impossible in practice so the, the situation remains so there is a petition to try to get this visa changed at the moment and, and what's that petition called and where can people find it? It's a, it's a government e-petition. And if you look on uh, Twitter, you can find it um, from lots of organisations, but especially one called Kalayan, K-A-L-A-Y-A-A-N, which is a migrant domestic worker charity. Fantastic. I'll pop that in the pod notes as well uh, for all of you listeners. Um, when we we spoke in 2019, also it's, uh, spoke, it's something you mentioned in your book, but this big modern slavery or dealing with it was Theresa May's, like, that was her big thing, wasn't it? And she made several big speeches about how she was going to tackle it. Um, are the Johnson government as focused on it? Um, how Has anything changed? I mean, I sort of expect the answer is going to be no, <laughs> but uh, has anything changed uh, with, with this new government um, since, since they came in? Well, Johnson is still kind of part of their policy areas. They're still dedicating staff and budget to it. As I said, they cited it in the 2019 election manifesto, but it was, it was really Theresa May's pet project. So, whilst it's still in play and we're still exporting our you know world leadership to lots of countries around the world on modern slavery and indeed parts of our modern slavery act too uh, it's not kind of a flagship policy in the same way um what we do see is home secretary pretty patel loves to bring up 
this topic, trafficking uh, specifically, when she wants to legitimize hardening borders because, you know, it's portrayed as keeping the traffickers out. So definitely it's being deployed very clearly by her in that way, as it has been by lots of politicians around the world, which I mention in the book. I think that um, really the kind of problem here is that it is completely anathema to Boris Johnson's politics to look at those structural conditions that make people vulnerable, right? So the the really important thing to understand is vulnerability is not inherent. No one is randomly just vulnerable to being exploited. It's constructed by policies. So that could be because you are deemed illegal. So you can only go to exploitative employers who are willing to commit a crime, basically. Or it could be because you are destitute. So you're going to say yes to a really dodgy job offer. So it's about those deep drivers. And we certainly don't have a government that is interested in tackling those underlying causes. I mean, one of the sort of key things in the Johnson government as well is that they never seem to be keen on information by experts it was sort of obviously michael goes famous phrase from some years ago saying people are tired of experts but but you know with everything johnson's done everything sort of again dealing with the pandemic to, to brexit and everything seems to ignore any actual decent information and it, and it seems so clear going through your book that so many of the protocols to deal with modern slavery don't seem to be asking the people that have been affected by it um and i thought one one thing that i found particularly interesting was how uh, when you sort of discuss about the, the sex industry and how anti-trafficking industries seem to have been almost more harmful for those that have been exploited by it, which to me just seems absolutely baffling as to how you would let that happen. Yeah, it's absolutely horrific, I have to say. And I think even though obviously I knew this stuff when I was writing the chapter, still researching that chapter and some of the, the like facts and freedom of information requests and things like that, it's just appalling what's going on. So um, modern slavery exploitation within the sex industry is the same as any other industry, as in you have people working in a range of conditions. Some of those are like good enough conditions and some of them are really severely exploitative. We can say the same about farming, construction, cleaning. However, anti-trafficking, modern slavery activity focused on the sex sector has fail to understand this because it's been essentially blinded by a kind of moralistic distaste for sex, um, the sex sector existing at all. And so what you see is um, groups who have historically always been against sex work. So obviously faith groups, um, lots of them, and also some kind of radical feminist groups taking up anti-trafficking as a tool to try to get rid of the sector as a whole. Uh, So they will, for example, use statistics that say that the sex sector is just endemic with trafficking and will um, conflate migrants, all migrant sex workers with trafficked women, even though there are migrant sex workers who've been, you know, campaigning for years against this and have banners saying foreign, not forced. All of these these kinds of experiences are erased because it's so you know distasteful that they people find it hard to believe that women are actually choosing to sell sex. Now, um, this has really pernicious impacts on um, not only on women who are selling sex by choice, but also on trafficked 
women in the sex sector. So you see, for example, in the, in the book, I did some freedom of information requests on raids that were portrayed in the press and by police as being um, rescuing women, being anti-trafficking to work out, well, how many women were referred into survivor support, which is what should happen if there were the victims of that. And there weren't any. Um, and so clearly these tactics aren't working that treat the sector as all the same situation. What we really need to see is um, decriminalization of the sex sector. So that is a way of um, bringing the sector into the light, making sure that anyone in it has rights, that they can go to the authorities if they're experiencing harm without fear of being criminalized themselves, that women can work together in safety and that sex worker organizations can be part of trying to tackle trafficking rather than having to kind of um, fight against it. Um, and just to say, like sometimes for some reason, people think decriminalization of sex work means decriminalization of rape, of exploitation, of trafficking. It doesn't. It's the same as every other sector. There would still be problems in it. It's not a silver bullet, but there would be less problems. And the women who are having to do that to earn their livelihood would have more rights and protections. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And we'll be back with Emily in a minute, but first... Back in 2017, after the horrific Grenfell fire tragedy, the government, uh, then led by flu duct Theresa May, promised they would do everything they could to ensure another fire like that never ever happened again. So, you'll be unsurprised to know that there are still up to 11 million people still living in properties with unsafe cladding, because for the Conservatives, they obviously interpreted ensuring it never happens again to mean just specifically to Grenfell Tower, and everywhere else would just be a new issue that they haven't got time to think about until something terrible happens. Worse still is that the costs for removing the cladding have completely bypassed the construction firms that put it in there and instead gone straight to leaseholders via huge service fees, some of whom have gone bankrupt as a result and many are unable to sell their properties because it's the one time where the smell of something cooking really won't help potential buyers. Meanwhile, all tenants are suffering higher costs of up to 440% increases from insurance companies that think the best way to help people who are stuck in a death trap is to charge them for the privilege. 
The government announced a £1 billion building safety fund 12 months ago, but the problem was that £1 billion only covers sort of 20 to 30% of all project costs, if that. So someone else had to stump up the costs, and unfortunately that someone else is all the people that shouldn't have to stump up the costs. The Labour Party brought an opposition motion to Parliament last week, calling for the government to take action on removing all flammable cladding. But Conservative MPs abstained from voting on it. Now look, it'd be very easy to say that's due to all of them not giving a shit about it, but perhaps as depressingly, it's because it was an opposition day motion, which means the government aren't bound to do anything about it, and hey, playing politics is apparently more important than playing with fireproofing. However, the Prime Minister did announce last week as well that they'd be outlining a plan very shortly, so that could be anywhere between the time you hear this and 2032. Advisor to the Cabinet, Michael Wade, who looks a bit like if Dr Bunsen had been very, very ill, devised a plan last year for long-term loans to companies that own the buildings, which would then be paid back by leaseholders through service charges, which again sort of just means the people who are responsible for the cladding being there in the first place take absolutely zero responsibility, and everyone who lives there has to pay the world's most overcomplicated protection racket for wanting to stay safe. Campaigners are calling it a cladding tax, which is right on two levels, as it's very much insulating those responsible from the consequences. The government have said that it isn't what they will do. They're not going to do that plan, but they have also kept Michael Wade on board to help them work on financial solutions, so there's every chance the actual outcome will be much worse. This is also the responsibility, I should say, of Housing Secretary and what if someone made a sculpture of Ben Affleck but out of sponges and with their eyes closed, Robert Jenrick, who's so concerned about the issue that he didn't even turn up to the vote last week and instead sent a junior communities minister who seemed to get very overexcited that he was allowed outside to talk to people. So, while some sort of bailout for those hit by unfair costs would be very welcomed, it'd be entirely fair to be concerned that it'll be the big businesses saved from costs, as it will turn out all the policy will allow them to do is replace the dangerous fire hazard cladding with cheap cladding that explodes when it rains, while everyone who lives in the buildings will have to pay it back by giving their firstborn to Richard Desmond or something. One unnamed Whitehall source, as look, none of them ever seem to have names like their parents were that neglectful, they told the Times that there is concern that if the government give the leaseholders campaign an inch, they'll want a mile. Ugh, how dare these people want to live somewhere that isn't a fire trap and not have to pay their life savings to fix someone else's mistake? I swear if this government were hostage negotiators, they'd tell the kidnapper they could have anything they wanted, then detain the hostages as they were released and tell them they've got handover cash to cover the £6 million in notes and the helicopter as it's their fault for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Endar cladding scandal has a 10-step plan which they've submitted to the government which overall asks for all cladding to be removed and for all residents to be supported. So hopefully at least some, if not all of it, will be taken into consideration when the cladding plan is revealed. Fingers crossed that at least this one time the government do something constructive. And now, back to Emily. I mean, it, it just sort of keeps coming back to the fact that, you know, obviously the message of de- we're decriminalising sex work is something the government would never do because that doesn't fit with this kind of uh you know i i hate the term virtue signaling but it really feels like throughout the book modern slavery is being used in a virtue signal way uh again i use that term very uh, very rarely i don't like but it is that thing of saying we're doing this thing but we're not actually going to put any effort into doing it properly we just want you yeah. to know that we're doing this thing and and that seems the same with with that i guess decriminalizing the sex industry would be too drastic and too progressive a move yeah, and I think the the problem with the sex sector is that people don't like the fact sex work exists in general, mm. right? And obviously I understand why that's the case. Um, you know, we live in a in a society with misogyny and commodification of people and all of these things, of course. But um if we don't want anyone to have to sell sexual services, then we need to address the reasons people sell sexual services, which are not because there are men who want to buy it. 
it's because they need to earn a living. And, so, you know, there isn't, there's a really amazing report from 2019 from Bristol University that is full of testimonies from people selling sex and why they're doing it. And it is like they've got caring responsibilities. They needed flexible work. It wasn't available. Um, you know, trans exclusionary workplaces, disabilities, are all sorts of reasons. None of them are because a man came along and offered to buy it from them. That's not what provoked them to sell sex. So that's what we need to address if we're not comfortable with sex work existing. I mean, I, I think it's, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's also potentially because we live in a you know society where uh, we're still very prudish about discussing these things. And it's similar to you know the idea of decriminalising drugs, which should actually make everything a lot safer for people and ruin a lot of exploitation. But you know, we always have a government that don't want to be seen as the ones who legalise drugs because that goes against a very specific voice in, mm. in society that would be very upset with that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, one of, uh, again, sort of referring back to when we, we last spoke a couple of years ago, there were a lot of recommendations made by the Modern Slavery Act that companies took on to stop them, you know, either uh, sort of selling produce that was made by exploited workers or, or you know, having exploited stuff. But, uh, and I remember at the time you basically said that barely anyone was, which is really bleak, barely anywhere was, was following those recommendations. Are we seeing changes to that? now and um for the listeners emily just pulled a face that was uh <laughs> that answered the question but you know and, and why are they why are they still not taking action well so um yeah well there is there is some increased compliance with what what companies have to do under the Monsavery Act. But the reason I called a face was that we need to look, as I explain in the book, at what it is they're being required to do, right? So the Monsavery Act requires large companies to publish a statement each year that says what steps, if any, they're taking to tackle modern slavery in their operations and supply chains. So there's crucial two crucial things to this. Firstly, the words, if any, so they don't actually have to do anything at all. You could legally be completely compliant with the Modern Slavery Act as a business if you put a piece of paper on your website that says Modern Slavery Act statement, we haven't done anything. It's been signed by a director, approved by the board, and it's linked on our homepage. That would make it legally compliant. Um, so the second problem, I mean, obviously, that's like ridiculous, lightweight legislation. But there is a second problem that Obviously, most companies don't write, we're not doing anything. Um, but companies get to define the steps they take themselves. And almost uniformly, they will choose ones that perpetuate business as usual and uh, do kind of superficial window dressing. So, for example, they will have um, like an ethical supplier policy that suppliers have to agree to so like garment factories to a to a brand that you'd buy clothes from that garment factory has to agree to this policy and that policy will say in it we will not commit modern slavery right but they the brand won't do anything about the price it's paying that factory for those garments or how quickly it requires them and it's those things which are called purchasing practices that drive exploitation um, where things are produced or you know they'll train their staff to spot the signs of slavery but they will continue outsourcing as much of their business as possible which means more and more workers are precarious which creates more and more vulnerability so they will select these um these actions that really are you know they're just not worth 
they're not really worth doing. And there's been this massive dance around the Modern Slavery Act, trying to get more companies to comply with this bit of the act, because government just did nothing. Like you say, it was like ridiculous, ridiculously bad compliance. Um, but actually, we need to step back from that and realise like this is not going to work. We should be mandating specific changes. Why is it okay for a brand to contract a factory to make something without paying living wages, without living wages being um, bedded into that contract for those factory workers? Why are we not ensuring greater union coverage? Because unions are the you know, t- tried and tested way to protect workers' rights and conditions. Why are we not limiting outsourcing? All of these things are doable. Everything is a choice and we're choosing completely the wrong path at the moment. Do you think that, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd love to be positive, not to miss about these things, but do you think it's only going to get worse because, well, you know, we've had a pandemic where people are relying on online companies who employ vast amounts of uh, employees and you know we've, we've heard a lot of stories about Amazon and people not even having toilet breaks and there's also then all the big clothing companies that um, are online and have histories of exploitation in factories that are now buying up all the big high street brands um, and a lot of power is going to these big companies and that combined with our post-Brexit regulations do you, do you think that we're going to see depressingly an increase in, in companies not uh, following guidelines about modern slavery um, Yes, I think we yeah, I think we will for sure, especially the economic impacts of COVID. There's going to be all a million excuses to drop anything that, you know, was the cherry on the top and they didn't really care about anyway. The only the kind of glimmer of hope, I suppose, is that as things get worse, um as you know, labor rights maybe are, are rolled back because of Brexit. Perhaps, you know, the UK population, the working population will realise how important working together to protect rights and conditions is. Perhaps we'll see a resurgence in a, you know, trade unions 2.0 kind of thing. And there are a couple of really amazing small newer unions who keep winning stuff. I mean, it's incredible. Um, United Voices of the World and Independent Workers of Great Britain. So that for me is like is that the seed of a much bigger, longer lasting change in how we take a role as active citizens, um, you know, fighting for our rights? That's I, what, what I was going to ask you next, really, is, is what we, we can do about this, because I think one of the things that you, you pinpoint so perfectly in your book is that it is it's easier for a lot of us just to go, right, we're angry about this one thing without knowing the detail of it, without knowing, um, you know, what it is. It's easy for us to, for example, donate to a big telethon fundraiser without having to know what, what the issues in our local area are and what are, you know, what what's happening nearby. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's, that's one of the things with, with modern slavery, as you explain in your book, is that we, we have this collective term and that is easier for, for us to compute. So if that's the case and... Uh, and and it's not being tackled um, as as easy as we think. So what what can we do about it? The the average person, the listener, what can we do to actually um, tackle modern slavery? Yeah. So this is something that I have been asked a lot over the last few years. Um, and the the problem with the modern slavery story about exploitation is that it operates like a fairy tale, right? It's it's um, a comforting tale about how this bad thing is happening, but we can vanquish it and then liberate people, um, and then everything is fine. And um, it always pitches rescuing someone and you know sending them into freedom as the end of the story locking up the baddie and that's just not um 
that's just not how in reality exploitation occurs or ends in fact a lot of people who are rescued so to speak end up back in exploitative circumstances because what this comes down to is a lack of alternative economic options um so there is no you know there's no singular answer because there's no singular type of exploitation there's no singular cause um i mean one thing people can do is vote differently and make sure that they're voting for politicians who genuinely seem to understand the experiences of most of the people in the uk rather than just people in westminster and secondly um be part of campaigns and fights that tackle those underlying factors that make people vulnerable. So stop buying this moral crusade line that makes us feel good and ask, um, you know, why are people on visas like the Overseas Domestic Worker Visa? Why is universal credit just seeming to embed poverty so much? You know, why we need joining, supporting those organisations that are fighting those battles, ensuring also that, you know, um looking around you and thinking well okay am i in a union but what about the cleaning company that um is cleaning my office or like the tesco i go into regularly start asking questions and becoming an active citizen an active participant in what's going on in our society and i know that's so much easier said than done everyone's tired and busy but you know we're not going to get changed from the top the other thing i just say is um always make sure that you interrogate and challenge when people are conflating sex trafficking with sex work because it is harming so many people's lives and it is you know I give a lot of really ludicrous examples in in the chapter on sex in the book from parliament from the press and so on and it's just everywhere and once you start seeing it you know you you it'll be like a whole new kind of um, 2020 vision on what's going on so really starting to to challenge that and stand up for some of the most marginalized women in our society and you also do it in the book for you know illegal migrants compared to exploited workers uh which the the terms seem to be sort of thrown about willy-nilly depending on you know whether they've sadly passed away or whether they haven't or whether they've been detained or you know it it seems to be often it's the the same people in the same situations and just depends on what angle the the politicians want us to to think about them yeah so pretty patel is the the prime peddler of this um thing yeah the the chapter on borders and immigration um opens with the the death of 39 Vietnamese people in October 2019 that I'm sure people remember in a in a container lorry in Essex and um very quickly politicians including Priti Patel were referring to it as um human trafficking and I I I was watching this unfold I was sort of commentating in the media about it and I could see that um how disingenuous this was because there was no knowledge this was this was um trafficking for something to be trafficking you'd need to have evidence that the people were being exploited or were going to be exploited um they didn't even report the nationality correct for the first couple of days so it was really clear to me you know three hours after these people have been found oh look Priti Patel saying it's trafficking and that is precisely so that we blame the traffickers not borders and so that she can hand ring and call these people victims rather than what her own policies should be making her say right which is to criminalize them and we saw a month after that 10 men found in the back of a lorry in Essex struggling to breathe 
Thankfully, people got there in time, opened the lo- uh, doors of the lorry, and they were all arrested on suspicion of immigration offences. And there is no difference, as you say, between those cases. It is purely about people being alive and people being dead and what politicians want to portray themselves as. I mean, as I said, I think one of the things I found just brilliant about your book, one of the many things, it was that you, it's very eye-opening about language and about the need for critical thinking uh, in politics. And it reminded me a lot of, um, there was a great article by Adisa Chakravarti in, in The Guardian recently about poverty and how we have fuel poverty and food poverty and housing poverty, but they're all still poverty. And by giving them lots of different groups, we're ignoring the the the, uh, the overall problem. And I, and I wondered if, Actually, the reverse of modern slavery, should we stop using the term modern slavery and should we be talking about worker exploitation, exploitation? Should we be more open to focusing on the different areas of it and the fact that it's overall systematic change that that has happened rather than this one term that of a thing that doesn't really in itself exist (laughs) as as, as people say it does? Yeah, I think we need to stop stop using that as the term because I think it is just perpetuating this really problematic narrative that it's nothing to do with political choices. Um, that said, it's important to recognise the lived experience of people who've been in horrific exploitation and they will often say, you know, I felt like I was a slave. I felt like I was being enslaved. And we have to respect that, but also recognise it's being kind of like weaponized um, problematically into this story. So it's holding those two things in tension and making sure that the choices we're making are trying to make people's lives better in the long run. Well, thank you. Thank you. But I've been, um, as I said, I, I think you've got a, a remarkable way to take some very, I mean, complicated uh, issues and also some quite upsetting ones and explain them in a very easily communicable way. I mean, I understood it, basically. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> the listeners, I understood it and I got it and it was uh, fascinating, which is brilliant. That's all I want. Um, but no, it's a fantastic book. And uh and what the question that I've I've asked you this twice before on this podcast. So uh, apologies if you've run out of people. Um, but apart from your book, obviously, which people can get now everywhere, um, who else would you recommend that listeners check out on the issue of modern slavery? I know there's there's a lot of references uh, in the book to people that you used for research. Um, I wonder if there's anywhere that people should immediately go on Twitter, online, wherever for information. Yeah, so aside from the petition I mentioned earlier, there's a really cool, quite new organisation that I think deserves everyone's support, whether um, monetary or otherwise, called Survivor Alliance. And it is, um, you know, the first organisation seeking to make sure that people's voices are heard who've been exploited. And that's so vital if we're going to have campaigns that work if we're going to have um, policies eventually that actually solve the problem because who is it that knows best it is people with lived experience so survivor alliance uh, is really worth checking out and then i'd also say have a look at the uh, decrim now campaign if you're interested in understanding more about decriminalization of sex work on their website they've got loads of like helpful briefings and they've got twitter feed and all of that so those are two really useful resources it was great to get Emily back on the podcast and honestly I can't rave enough about how good and important her book is um, you can grab The Truth About Modern Slavery at plutopress.com and also at all the other bookshops but not like the actual physical bookshops obviously that's not allowed don't break into Waterstones you'll get in a lot of trouble um, you can find Emily on Twitter at Emily Kenway and her website is emilykenway.com and a big thank you also to James at Pluto Press 
Next week, I've got a bit of a different guest politically um, to normal, and I think it should be a pretty interesting chat. Mm, exciting. Um, but after that, who, what, where? No, wait, not where. I'll have to interview them from home because everything um why definitely though who to talk to about what and why and you can of course send any suggestions you might have to me at parpol bro on twitter the partly political broadcast facebook group the contact page at partly political broadcast.co.uk or email me at partly political broadcast at gmail.com or you could just bring it up at the next handforth parish council meeting and guaranteed everyone will hear about it very very soon unless jackie weaver decides to mute you as always it's probably just best to email isn't it <laughs> And that is the end of this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And thank you all the amounts in both Metric and Imperial for listening in once again. Um, if you enjoyed any of that, then please do tell everyone that's ever existed, alive, dead or immortal, to subscribe to this here podcast for a weekly helping. Um, perhaps give it a nice five star review on any of the podcast grabbing platforms that let you do that. And maybe even should the desire take you, donate a few monies to the Kofi.com forward slash Parpol Bro, join the Patreon.com forward slash Parpol Bro or via the ACAST supporter button. Uh, endless gratitude to these amazing dudes Acast, my brother the last sceptic Cat Day and Katie Coxall and there'll be a bonus pod offering of the live Leicester show in a few days but otherwise this will be back next week when with rising cases of the South African variant the government insists local elections must happen but voters will have to bring their own polling stations ballot boxes voting slips and pens and schools, churches and town halls to put them in Bye This week's show is sponsored by Hotel Quarantine, brand new reality show on Channel 4 featuring Z-list celebs who have to stay in their rooms indefinitely and complete tasks like try and get a shopping delivery slot or even get dressed once. Watch as that one from that band who broke up before they even did that one song injures himself trying to open a bottle lid on the desk and no one finds his body for six days. Ha ha laugh as that one from that show on that channel no one has tries to climb out of the window but gets detained and fined £10,000. Hotel Quarantine coming soon to Channel 4. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.